welcome to Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations, where we help people explode into their lives through full impact mindfulness. The only entrance fee is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. If you have a few particles of those, welcome aboard. You're on your way. I'm Jim Ellermeyer. I'm a behavioral health therapist, continuing our conversation with Chris Whitlatch, author of Notorious Pittsburgh. So we were talking about, you gave a very detailed explanation of the rise of the massage parlors, the rise of uh, the vice trade, and the individuals who fought over it. It's uh, it's amazing to me um, that that would even be allowed to take place here in Pittsburgh, but it was. You're talking about uh, a period with, it was towards the end of the golden age of, of the Pittsburgh family, um, here in Pittsburgh, uh, in the seventies and the early eighties, but you, it was still surprising that they would allow that much fighting to go on in a small piece of their, their business. Likewise, I think you, you had some, some, what we would consider some of the stronger leadership during that time. You had Mayor Richard Caligiri, um, who was considered, you know, one of the, the great visionaries here in Pittsburgh. Um, why did he allow this to happen? Well, he tried. <laughs> um, lawyers are good here in Pittsburgh <laughs> on both sides of the fence. Um, but yeah, it happened to where people were fighting over what wasn't necessarily a large criminal enterprise, but one that was lucrative enough that you would fight. And it was all controlled by one person, George Lee, until he was assassinated. And then the real fighting, the real war began between his underlings that he actually brought into the business. So uh, they fought over who would control his empire afterwards, and it never did get reassembled into no, after, an empire. Af- after, he, <laughs> after, he was, after he was killed, and there was three people that tried to take over things. But I think one of the most colorful characters was uh, Tex. Tex has a... Um, a wonderful position here in, in Pittsburgh, I think. This is a very conservative town um, in its, you know, moral views and its, you know, in, in every way, I think. And here in Pittsburgh, Tex, you had a transvestite that was actually celebrated long time ago, back in the 70s and 80s. And it's still difficult. I mean, trans rights are, are in the news again yes. um, in many other states. And here in Pittsburgh, in a conservative area, they actually celebrated. They gave, the Post-Gazette gave Tex Gill the, the, the dubious man and the dubious woman of the year award in the same year. Um, and I think if you look back, there wasn't that understanding or that, inclusion that is happening but at least it was today that's happening but at least there was that acceptance back then which surprises you know the hell out of me (laughs) and and tex was married to a woman tex was married to a woman they were seen on a regular basis in public here in, in pittsburgh um and like i said there was at least acceptance um of Tex and Tex is one of those big characters, uh, you know, wore wore suits and a big cowboy hat. 
I mean, Tex is one of those great characters that you would expect to see in a movie. In fact, I think they did try to to do a movie a, a few years ago, and it just never was made about Tex's life, um, which would have been amazingly interesting. Tex was was very public as a character, but very private in his own life. So we start off with the vice serving the racer needs of the working man. Then prohibition comes in for 10 years, which exploded the uh, organized crime. Yeah, well, you, you've got, um, I think you've got that in, in across the United States that you can actually point to prohibition being the sort of catalyst for organized crime across the country. It's when Lucky Luciano formed the commission. Um, it sort of brought all of these disparate gangs together into strong families. And that's kind of what jump-started here in Pittsburgh, those golden years for the Pittsburgh family. Um, it started around that time, and it was really strong in the 50s and 60s. And it started to, to basically go on the wing in the late 70s and 80s as you had leaders um, die. Uh, and new leaders come about, and they got themselves into businesses that um, the police are just not going to overlook, things like drugs. Um, and and that led to, to more of the sort of downfall of those golden years here in Pittsburgh for, for the family. Well, it seemed to me that the police overlooked things that they believe weren't harming, really harming anyone. They, I guess they believed that prostitution those type speakeasy things weren't uh, were a nuisance and they weren't going to do anything about it unless absolutely forced to. Well, you know, Jim, you know, Carnegie was very beneficial to, to Pittsburgh, but so were the numbers runners um, in the Hill District. And so were, you know, some other, you know, um, individuals that were involved in illegal activities were propping up their own communities, were putting money back into their communities, were helping the less fortunate in their communities. Um, so they were doing some of the work that you would expect out of, you know, the local government was actually being done by these individuals. Well, for many of these folks, the door was closed to them as far as getting ahead in life. So the only thing that they could do was what numbers runners also did was they sold them hope. Yes, yes, I yeah. know. And, you know, they, they built ball fields and brought professional teams into, into the area and held picnics. Um, and if, you know, even put food on, on people's table. Um, and if there's no other option for you in your, your neighborhood or your community, I mean, how can you judge that? You can't. <laughs> you well, just, I'm not justifying you, Yeah, it. you can't. I can't justify it either, but I can also say, I can't say I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, take that generosity if I was in that situation. I would, yes. I'm not justifying the, the numbers game. However, it did give people hope and they didn't cheat anybody. If you won, they paid you. If you won, you got paid. Mm-hmm. And they provided some employment, which wasn't rough back then. And uh, you're right. They, they did put money back into the community. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to have changed uh, with uh, the advent of uh, drug running. Well, now the business gets it's rougher, as you said, right? 
Um, it's not, it's not people, um, you know, not, not playing the state lottery, but playing your, your local lottery, so to speak. It's not, you know, someone paying for, um, entertainment like gambling or sex or something like that. Now it's, it's become becoming a health issue for a community. It's becoming a crime issue for a community. And at that point, I, you know, I think the governments decided they needed to crack down here. It was, it was more than, than, than they could handle at that point. And also it's the lure of money. When there, something becomes lucrative, many people begin to take notice. Yes. And also, you know, these, these businesses that are, you know, are illegal businesses, how can they let another illegal business take that, that income? They can't. And so now you've got, you've got, um, you've got a lower barrier of entry, so to speak, into a violent, more, you know, um, rougher, uh, marketplace, um, and you're gonna have that that fighting that you had. It wasn't controlled as it was by organized crime as much, right? There was other other players involved in that particular business. Well, you described the three players very, very descriptively uh, after Lee died, and uh, some of them were it was kind of like the Keystone Cops. Uh, I don't think they could find their way out of a lit room. Somehow they made money, but most of all, it was the, uh, it was a brutality. Well, it's, it's interesting to me who George recruited for his business. He business, uh, for his empire basically. And George's estate was a mess. He actually sat, sat in cold storage. He couldn't even be buried <laughs> because his estate was such a mess. And what ended up happening was it was just split. And so, um, Nick DeLuca, who was a city firefighter before George brought him into the business, he got three or four of the, the parlors. So he got a good piece of the business. Tex Gill got another three or four parlors and got a good piece of the business. And then there was, um, you know, my, my favorite guy. And, oh, man, I just forgot his name. Uh, <laughs> while we're talking, Mel. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mel, Mel got to keep the stage. And the stage is where August Wilson was where the August Wilson Center is now. That was the most derelict block on Liberty um, at the time. And the stage was sort of the flagship of that derelict block um and mel thought he was mel was a used car salesman right techs shoot horses uh, you know it, these aren't these aren't raised criminals right they are they're those that kind of were looking for a leg up you know a better life i think you could say or in mel's case maybe some fun excitement yeah it sounded like none of them really enjoyed the money that they made. I don't, and that, it sounds in your book, Chris, like they didn't make an exorbitant amount of money. You didn't off of Vice. Um, you made enough. Um, you know, they were able to, um, you know, buy nicer houses, um, maybe move to a better um, neighborhood in some cases. Um, but they weren't pulling down, you know, masses, massive amounts of money. And even when the IRS busted them for tax evasion it was tax evasion on what the parlors took in and it wasn't i mean the government didn't 
unless they were hiding a lot of this and I just never dug that out, you know, the government did not bust them for more than, you know, 80 to to a couple hundred thousand dollars in their cases of tax evasion. And that was basically a year's income for the parlor. And we look at that today and it doesn't sound like much. And it was decent back in the late 70s, but it wasn't like they were buying yachts or, you know, taking, you know, exorbitant trips or things like that. They were making a living at that time. When we're talking about the psychology of these individuals, a lot of people have no desire to uh, be wage earners or what I would call wage slaves. Mm -hmm. And they would be willing to take uh, another, I would say, alternative method to make money. Yeah, and and I think, you know, in, in these particular cases, what, what uh, Nick DeLuca was uh, doing was difficult. It's hard to be a firefighter. Um, Tex was doing something she loved, he loved. Um, and, um, but probably wasn't making a lot of money out of it. And, and this was a way to make some more money. And as I said, I think Mel was just, this was exciting. It's a way to be a, yes. a part of something. You're a player. You're a player. You're doing something. It's more exciting. You're right? a pirate. Yeah. You're a pirate. That's a good one. Yeah, that's that, a good description. Uh, Steve Jobs said there was two types of people with a spectrum in between in this world, Chris. You're people that prefer to be in the Navy and people who prefer to be pirates. <laughs> so, but then we move into uh, some rather deeper and darker uh, characters like Sasha Scott, Glenn Scott, uh, Sue uh, Henkel. Uh, that, that could be a movie there. Yeah, I don't think we we realize, but we had a serial killer amongst us here in the you know seventies, late sixties into the eighties, and that's Richard Henkel. Um, and um, before they shut him down, he didn't just kill people. I mean, he he got enjoyment out of killing those people. Um, he didn't just shoot you; he shot you several he times. He butchered them. Yeah, you know so. Um, there is, you know, there is that kind of, um, person that would gravitate to that freedom and that excitement as well. Um, and that element brings, you know, trouble and darkness. Well, yes. Uh, so tell us, uh, describe the characters to us, describe, uh, the, the Scots, describe Sue, describe those people to us. Yeah, so Sasha, um, you know, Sasha had a just a, a rough start to her life, and by the age of 14, she was already involved in prostitution. And she bounced from one uh, man to the next. Um, she eventually married um, Glenn Scott, which is why she's known as Sasha Scott now. Um, Glenn was a, a business, a local businessman, but he obviously was involved in some extracurricular activities of some sort. Um, he ends up dead um, very soon after they married. Uh, the likeliest uh, suspect is Richard Henkel. Uh, he got them to... Basically, Henkel uh, was one of the maybe pioneers of insurance fraud. Unfortunately, his version of insurance fraud is you ended up dead. Um, he would get you to sign a um, insurance policy naming either he or his mother, and then he'd bump you off, and they'd collect the money. Um, 
his insurance schemes got more outlandish um, as things went. Um, Ms. Scott uh, went, well, never left work at the Genesis, which was one of the most famous, you know, sort of the flagship massage parlor here um, in Pittsburgh. It was on uh, Liberty Avenue. Um, that building is not there anymore. It was redeveloped, but um, it, uh, it was her home spot, so to speak. It was just up from the Gimbel's department store. Um, and on, you know, Christmas, right before Christmas, um, Henkel paid a taxi driver after he had gotten Scott to sign an insurance policy with him to deliver a brightly wrapped Christmas present straight to Sasha. And when Sasha opened the package, boom, it blew up and it killed her instantly. And it was one of the most infamous events here in Pittsburgh um, because it was during the Christmas season. It was seasonably warm that day. There were a lot of shoppers out on the streets and they got showered with glass. It stopped traffic on Liberty. Um, it um, caused such an uproar for Mayor Caligiri and his staff that he closed every massage parlor. And they were closed for exactly three days. And the reason why it was three days is because the courts were closed on the 24th and the 25th for the Christmas holiday. And on the 26th, when they reopened, the lawyers had that injunction lifted and the massage parlors went right back to business. So Sasha's dead, her husband's dead. Several others around her um, circle that she ran with end up dead as well. Bobby um, Pugh, who was a massage parlor, who hung out with, with them. Um, uh died as well mysteriously uh hankel went on to um uh kill sue dixon um who he was dating at the time and was working around that racket as well um in some form or fashion um and then he got caught he got caught because he got really really bold with his his um last um policy. Basically, he got Debbie Gentile, who was working for him and another businessman in some kind of maybe legitimate, maybe not legitimate business that he was had his hands in to sign an insurance policy that would pay if she was killed on an airplane or on airport property. And she left for California. He called her up, convinced her to fly back. She told a friend that dropped her off at the airport that he knew he was going to she knew he was going to kill her. And sure enough, she was found with, I think it was something like 47 stab wounds and five gunshot wounds in the back of a car. But she was killed on uh, the old airport property in the hotel. And so the insurance company would have to pay. Except the insurance company said, well, this is pretty convenient. And so they fought paying it. And they fought paying it long enough that the police were able to catch up and put some of the evidence together. And um, they managed to nail uh, Hankel for um, his, um, his murder of Gentile, not for any of the other activities, but for that particular murder. They were going for the death penalty. He basically bargained for life in prison and got it. Um, before that all happened, he attempted to break out of Western Penitentiary and nearly accomplished that and held hostages for four 
four or five days. Um, and that was, you know, big news in, in uh, 1980. We're going to continue our conversation with our next episode with local author Chris Whitlatch. And at the end of every podcast, of course, we offer a free prescription. Fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Unplug your television and take up fishing. And for a truly mindful experience, we suggest that you fish without bait. Do a kindness for yourself and do a kindness for another. Forgive yourself and forgive another. If we are all not God's children, none of us are. Till all are free, none are free. Namaste. Namaste.